CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thank you all so much for being with us as we begin our new week on the show. As we often can say, I have a wonderful panel of political analysts uh, who will be on the show today. I'm going to introduce them in just a few minutes, but um, I'm also going to take just a few minutes at the top of this show to address the news that was released by GPB on Friday. Um, we haven't been on the air since the, sh- the uh, news was released. We took yesterday off um, because of the federal holiday, Juneteenth. Um, but as most of you know by now, on Friday, GPB announced that Political Rewind was being canceled, and um, I will uh, uh, no longer have a job after the show goes off the air in a couple of weeks. Uh, before I talk about my own feelings about this, let me give you the official GPB, uh, very briefly, what GPB has to say about it and what I was told. I was told this is a budgetary uh, matter. The, the uh, legislature did cut something like a million and a half dollars out of the funding that goes to our education programming and our satellite transmission of education programs to schools across the state. Uh, programming, as I've said on this uh, show many times, is paid for by you, the people who listen to GPB. You're the ones who provide the funding that allows us to keep working. But here is just a little of what GPB put out in its news release on Friday. Georgia Public Broadcasting today announced multiple planned programming changes as part of a realignment with the organization's key core mission to be a trusted public broadcaster, sharing stories unique to Georgians, and providing meaningful com- community engagement opportunities in cost-efficient uh, ways. Uh, and here's a quote from uh, GPB's president and interim CEO, Bert Wesley Huffman, quote, we're excited to share the experiences and stories of Georgians from all over the state with our upcoming programming opportunities. So here's where I stand as of today. This is incredibly sad news to me personally. Um, I've had a long career covering politics, uh, both in Chicago before coming to Georgia, but most particularly focused for over 20 years on politics in Georgia. And without question, Political Rewind has been the best job I've ever had in uh, broadcasting. I love the show because today's going to be a perfect example. I've said this to you. How many people have the incredible good fortune that I do to spend an hour every day listening to the remarkable analysis that our panel uh, brings to our conversation? I have treasured the time I've gotten to spend with the panelists on this show. There are some 40 people who are in the pool of uh, experts, analysts, uh, some of them professors, uh, some of them political insiders, um, journalists from across the state, and others. And I've truly come to love being with all of you um, during our tenure on this show. And, and I'm going to miss that dearly. Um, 
I know that some of the panelists have gotten to know each other personally during uh, their time on this show. They've reached out to one another and become friends, which is just so thrilling and, and gratifying to me. But beyond all that, here's what matters most. I think that over nine years, and you know we started as a one-day-a-week program, and your reaction to the show, your embrace of the show, every couple of years had us adding one more day, one more day, until for the last three-plus years now, three-and-a-half years, we've been, as you well know, a five-day-a-week live show. And what I hope is true is that we have helped establish better understanding of these extraordinarily tumultuous times in which we're living. I think of us as being a corner of sanity and reason every day of the week. We've fact-checked the lies and misinformation in politics today. We've called out the rage and recrimination that have become so commonplace. Um, And moving forward, I'm going to miss the opportunity uh, to talk about some remarkable stories that are coming up. Fawny Willis, who is going to uh, presumably roll out in, um, uh, indictments in the uh, 2020 election, efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election and more. The Supreme Court will be issuing its ruling on the legality of Georgia's abortion law. The rights of the LGBTQ and trans community continue to be eroded. We're moving into a presidential campaign where Georgians are going to play an important role in deciding on our future, and there's so much more. We continue to worry about equity um, across lines of diversity in this state. I could go on and list so many more things, but, but I won't today. I am uh, technically retiring from GPB, and the news release states that. But I have never wanted to give up this job, especially as we move through the times that I just talked about. And so it is certainly my hope that in the near future, there will be an opportunity for me to say that Political Rewind will in fact continue. There's nothing more I can say about that at this point, but my point of view is this show needs to continue in these difficult times. I'm sorry all of this is happening. You out there in the audience have been unbelievable, and the overwhelming response I've gotten from you in just the past three days has been so deeply moving to me. I feel like I've had the privilege of attending my own funeral, (laughs) but I am not walking off into the sunset. There will be a future for political rewind, and I will keep you all informed as we move forward with that. All right, enough. I've said too much, and I'm starting to get a little misty. Let me introduce today's panel because we have a lot to talk about. It's Tuesday, which means my partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is senior reporter of the AJC, Tamar Hallerman. Tamar, um, you've been an incredibly important part of this show. I'm very happy that you're with us as usual on this Tuesday. I'm so glad to be here, Bill. And I was so devastated when I heard the news last week about what's going on in the show. And let me just say, I'll follow you uh, wherever this show may end up in the future. And I know that it does have a future somewhere. And it has been amazing to hear from folks over the last couple of days. But just any time I travel the state, 
um, about how much they adore this show. Initially, when I started doing it, when I joined the AJC more than seven years ago, I'm just thinking, okay, we're doing this show for political operatives who live in Atlanta. But that <laughs> so is not true. As I go around, I am shocked that I meet people in fields that have nothing to do with politics, people who sit in labs all day or who work in dental offices or, or anywhere and they love this show bill and they love you and some of them this is their only source of political news and they talk about how they've really gained such an understanding of georgia and national politics through that and i think it's a real testament to what you've done and what your awesome awesome team has done and i'm so honored that i've gotten to be a part of it thank you for saying that um your ajc colleague uh patricia murphy also a mainstay of the show. You all out there know Patricia is a political reporter and columnist. She writes the pol Political Insider column for the paper two days a week. And Patricia, you oversee the jolt at AJC.com, which is the best summary of uh, important news stories in politics that you could find. Patricia, thanks for joining us today. We, didn't come, we weren't on the air yesterday, your normal day. I was really glad you could be on today. Uh, well, thank you so much, Bill. And Bill, I have no plans to attend your funeral anytime soon. So <laughs> this is um, a moment. <laughs> and I am disappointed for you, but I have known you since you were Channel 2's political reporter and I was a Capitol Hill flack. And we were really scared of Bill Nygut, actually, because we knew he was always <laughs> going to ask the hard, hard questions. Um, uh, but uh, I am really sad for the listeners of this show to be very sincere with you. Just like Tamar, I travel all over the state for my work. And um, I have been door knocking in Macon and somebody opening the door. Uh, said, oh, I know you from Bill Nygut's show on Political Rewind, the person who lived in the house that we were door knocking on. Um, I went to a women's event in Cleveland and every, literally, and I emailed you after this, every single person there knew me from Political Rewind. I'm positive they had never read my columns, but they all knew me from Political Rewind. Um, and just like Tamara said, it's their only source of information about politics. Local newsrooms have just been hollowed out and decimated. And um, if you can find talk radio in your corner of the world, um, it's talk radio, but it's not what this is, which is you working very hard to find um, Democrats and Republicans and people with really deep knowledge in these issues, um, political and otherwise, including health during the pandemic was so important. Um, and so I'm sad that this is not going to be available for Georgians because I think it's just a huge public service um, above all else. So um, I know you'll have another chapter in your career. I don't know where people will go from now on, um, and in the meantime, to find what you're delivering every day. Well, thank you. My goal is to make sure that is that when I do make a next step, assuming there is one, it will still be broadly available. Kendra King Maman uh, is a professor of political science at Oglethorpe University, but she's also interim provost, so she's become a big shot at Oglethorpe. Kendra, you're a, you're a newer participant in this show. We discovered you, what, a year plus ago, and I am so glad we did because you've added a great deal of value to our show. So thanks for being here today, Kendra. 
Well, Bill and everyone else, thank you all for um, partnering with me. I remember when Natalie said, hey, we want to get you on. Um, and what I'll say is this, I believe sincerely that Political Rewind is a state treasure. I think that this change um, in, in uh, focus is going to create a void that will not soon be replaced. Uh, this is a safe space, no matter what your political views are, but it's also a place and a space where you're challenged to consider um, the opinions of those you may not want to have a glass of wine with. And so for me, Bill, I think um, this, I think it's resurrection time and I think whomever you're able to partner with next, uh, it will be so great. Um, in the hip hop world, there's this saying, there's actually a song that says, back like I never left. And so that's what I'm putting in the atmosphere that you'll be back like you never left. And I think it's incredible upon all of us who have benefited from uh, this platform to spread the word um, loud and widely uh, as those next steps play, take place. But I also want to just say this, um, I petition um, our, our leaders in our state to uh, find something else um, in public radio that will allow voices to come together. We need this uh, for our state. We need this for the next generation. Uh, we need this for those who rely on talk radio and this type of political radio to be informed. Thank you for saying that. I, I saved for last uh, Representative Mary Margaret Oliver, the Democratic uh, House member uh, whose uh, uh, district is is based in uh, Decatur, but spreads far beyond it. Um, Mary Margaret, I've said this to you before. Uh, if there's any one person who has been most beloved by our listeners, certainly inside government, it's been you. And uh, you know it's always been a privilege for me to have you as a frequent panelist on the show. It's always been an honor. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for everything. The privilege of being invited to this show for nine years is a, a significant part of how I think about how I communicate, not only with my constituents, but to echo the voices of everyone this morning. I hear from people all over the state. And the fact that this show is so beloved is something that folks express to me daily. I have a long political career, and it's always been true that the party in charge is in charge of public radio voices. And I feel a, a great deal of sadness about the division within the political world of Georgia, um, despite the fact that I have real friendships with Republicans and work with Republicans in a very significant way. Uh, the, the partisan divide in Georgia is extreme. The most common thing that people say to me when they say how much they love Political Rewind is, I don't know how you go down there every day. They have a negative view of politics, and Rewind gives them a window to open and to expand away from a totally negative view. But there is a lot of negativity in politics right now, and folks tell me, and I know they tell every one of us on the panel, that they appreciate a civil and substantive discussion among folks that have very different views. And media does not offer that extensively in today's world, and that's why Political Rewind is so valuable. I think a lot about how I communicate with my constituents. Uh, you have been generous to invite a lot of Emory people um, to this table and the constituents uh, from Emory are part of whom I'm talking with when I'm a guest um, on this show. 
But what's the really fascinating to me is the extent to which this represents a statewide conversation that is civil, not based on name calling, not based on messaging, and based on folks that are respectful to each other. So I want to most importantly thank you for your leadership, and I look forward to working with you again soon in another platform. Thank you. Um, okay, let's do this. Um, I appreciate all of your comments. I, I want to make a couple other quick remarks. I'm very happy to say that uh, Natalie Mendenhall, Chase McGee, of course, Victoria Evans Cash, uh, Buddha, Everett Lamb, um, obviously they will continue uh, their tenure at uh, GPB and other roles, but thank goodness they've been so valuable to me, and I'm delighted that uh, they are going to be uh, retained by uh, management here. The other quick thing I'll say, two things. Number one, I know many of you have said that you want to start a petition, you're calling management, you're writing them. I think it's important for you to know um, that the decision is not going to change. Uh, and, and you may feel sad about that, you may feel angry about it, but I, I guess what I'm suggesting to you is uh, look to the future with us instead of, I think, hoping that somehow something is going to change at GPB, because the reality is um, the decision is final. And finally, this is the one day that we are going to do this kind of uh, talk about the show itself. I do not intend in my final days ahead to every day talk about this. I thought it was important to do it today. I'm grateful to the panelists for weighing in but we draw the line here because we have a lot of issues to talk about. So, Chase McGee, why don't we do this? Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. We'll come back and begin our conversation about politics after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind, Representative Mary Margaret Oliver, Kendra King-Mammon of Oglethorpe University, and Patricia Murphy and Tamar Hallerman of the AJC join us for the show today. Uh, Tamar, let's talk about abortion uh, to start things off. Um, this week, it will mark um, one year since the United States Supreme Court overruled uh, Roe, a 50-year precedent which uh, essentially opened the door for women to have access to abortion should they choose it. Obviously, Roe uh, overturned that and uh, left it up now to individual states to decide what the future of abortion should be. Um, right here in Georgia, Tamar, we have, of course, what we call, what has been called a heartbeat law. It has been challenged in at the state Supreme Court level, and we're waiting for them to respond. But the point is, the landscape for abortion this past year has changed so dramatically tomorrow. Yeah, a seismic shift in terms of abortion access in uh, in Georgia. My colleague Maya Prabhu has written a lot about this recently, and she got numbers from the state, and abortions are down by about half. 
um, over the last year. That's a huge number. And it, the, the numbers, if you take a look at her story, you see the changes, especially, I mean, after six weeks, just completely plummet due to the law. And there are also real changes in terms of the circumstances of the women who are getting these abortions. The more well-off women are still able to travel out of state in order to get the procedure, whereas lower-income women, uh, more often women of color, um, are having babies and not able to travel to schedule a, a procedure outside the state. Um, a seismic shift so far. And I think there is a question about what the state Supreme Court is going to, how they're going to rule on this case, um, whether they'll kick it back to the legislature to have them pass a version of this again. Um, but in the meantime, abortions are way down and will stay way down. Um, Patricia Maya Prabhu's article pointed out that in the first seven months of uh, 2022, there were about 4,000 abortions per month performed in the state of Georgia. Um, since uh, then, uh, half uh, that many, and we should add to that, the states surrounding Georgia, Florida, North Carolina, South Carolina, and now Tennessee, where there was a challenge that was um, uh, to the law there overturned. Um, it, it's become virtually impossible to get abortions in those states as well, leaving few options for a great many women who are in the position, usually a, a tough, d difficult position of having to decide about whether to carry a baby to term. Yeah, Patricia? I think there are also, yeah, can you hear me okay? Hello? Yeah. Okay, great. Um, yeah. So I think there are a number of um, related issues along with the number of abortions that we typically think of as um, uh, elective, a woman's choice to say, I'm not ready to have a baby yet for a variety of reasons. Um, there is a huge concern among OBGYNs that women who are in the process of having a miscarriage, women whose um, children are uh, facing fatal fetal abnormality. There is a carve out for that in the bill, but there is still an immense amount of anxiety among OBGYNs about whether their own licenses will be at risk, um, if they'll be at risk of prosecution, if they uh, perform those abortions. These are for women whose health is really and truly on the line. Um, and uh, I think also there is a lot of concern among the medical schools about whether the most qualified uh, students, medical students, will want to come to Georgia to practice in the state and to learn in the state if there's a limit to the number of um, procedures that they can be trained on, including abortions for um, those uh, women whose own health is at stake. Um, there, is, there is such risk to physicians in this environment that it has a real effect on what they're what risks they're willing to take it in the old regime it was not a risk it was seen as medically necessary in the new regime it is seen as can i prove this is medically necessary do i have the time to do to do that kind of proof um will i be in trouble anyway um it's just a very very um scary scenario for a number of uh physicians uh students uh medical trainers and um women themselves Mary Margaret, you can certainly take this discussion where you want to, but if you don't mind, let me add a couple elements to it. Number one, I think the uh, the uh, uh, Georgia law was passed in the 2019 uh, session, and I think what's of note 
about that is when the session began, uh, Speaker David Ralston and even Governor Kemp were uh, not as enthusiastic about going as far as this law that they eventually, uh, that was eventually passed, what they didn't want to go this far, but there was such overwhelming pressure from their uh, conservative anti-abortion constituents that they gave into that and passed what is one of the most restrictive laws in the country. Uh, have I got that right? You've got that right. I believe the political leadership at that era lost a little bit of control, lost control of what was happening. I don't know if they believed that the one vote uh, margin that carried the bill out of the House was really going to pass. I don't know that they really wanted uh, Senator Setzler's bill to be the vehicle for Georgia's analysis, since it was an extreme and is an extreme piece of legislation. Where we are right now is a, a world of chaos medical chaos where women's lives are in danger. We have a good amount of appropriate media attention on uh, mortality of women, childbirth and pregnancy. Uh, Georgia's statistics on that are very bad. It deals with medical anomalies, medical predictabilities or medical unpredictabilities, uh, but women's lives are in danger more so in Georgia uh, for have, for giving birth. And we apply on top of that a chaos that Patricia referred to about medical providers, what can they do? And it impacts poor women. It does not impact uh, me, the folks in my group who are able to find um, medical services that they need uh, appropriately outside of Georgia. The status of the Georgia Supreme Court case now, which should be coming down before September, is usually a deadline we're thinking about, uh, will decide whether or not the Georgia was uh, authorized to pass a six-week abortion ban at the time that Roe v. Wade precedent was the law of the land. So that's a procedural issue that I am thinking, hoping, maybe a little bit predicting that the Supreme Court will kick it back to the House and Senate of the Georgia General Assembly in 2024. Uh, that might happen, and if that happens, I'll be very interested to see whether they can get 91 votes in the House. Uh, that's kind of the political world. Uh, the legal world, uh, which I also follow closely, is that Georgia's constitutional protections of privacy under our state constitution are unique. And when we get to a real substantive analysis of the six-week ban, I think at that point, which probably I don't think will happen in this time of this particular decision before September, we might have a different result. But what is most sad to me uh, is look, participating in this issue for decades is there's chaos now for women who need help. And the impact of 20,000 other births that were not anticipated or planned and I'm just very concerned about what is the real impact on poor women in our state that today already don't have adequate medical care. Kendra? So I agree with what everyone has said. And I think, you know, we can talk about poor women, but I also think we have to localize it even more to women of color, regardless of economic status. When we look at the chaos and the absence of care in the labor and delivery room, 
um, it, it transcends um, just economics. Um, I can I can briefly share that even after I gave birth to my own son two years ago, I had a medical emergency, and it's only because of my labor and delivery team that was all African-American and then my nursing team that happened to be all Caucasian because they cared, I'm here right now alive, um, literally. And so when you talk about limiting and restricting choice, um, there's a fear component with this. When you talk about our um, border states that have now also become restrictive, for me, my thing is if we're going to tighten the front door and restrict a woman's choice, that means we have to be proactive and we have to be uh, really intentional about how we secure the back door. What about all these children that are being born um, to parents who don't even want a child? Uh, we've got to look at the rates of abuse going up. Um, the, the, again, just generational cycles of poverty and things of that nature. Here's what I've said. Someone asked me about this recently. I said, this is the best of times and the worst of times, depending upon where you sit. And, and the reality is that depending upon where you sit ideologically, you can say this is a win, you can say it's a loss, but for all the hundreds of thousands of women in the state of Georgia, um, whose voice has already been limited, uh, I think this is a tremendous loss across the board, regardless of where you are. Um, Tamara, at, at the time this uh, was being debated, and certainly and as we've had conversations over the years since on this show, I have made the point that um, while many, of course, think that the anti-abortion forces have um, been reckless in taking away the rights of women to make their own choices, um, it, these are people, in many cases, who have a sincere and profound belief in in life. And, and I don't want to deny the uh, fact that they feel strongly about that. What is, of course, troubling is the also layering onto that the politics, the, the right-wing politics of playing to the base. But, Tamar, with it, it, the, the fact of the matter is that Gallup just very recently released a poll which shows those anti-abortion forces are on the wrong side of the American people. Let me read you, Tamar, uh, just a couple of the uh, pieces of data that came from that uh, survey. A record-high 69% people, this was just within the last, I think, month plus, say abortion should generally be legal in the first three months, first trimester uh, of uh, pregnancy. Most Americans oppose abortion later in pregnancy, but 37% say it should be legal in the second three months, 22% in the third trimester. Um, so the reality is that the support for limited rights to abortion uh, are overwhelming. Virtually 70% of Americans are on that side of this issue, Tamar. Yeah, and it's good to see that there's details filled in because often it depends how you ask Americans about abortion. Do you believe in the constitutional right to abortion? Most people would say yes, but then when you get down to the details, the nitty gritty, there's a huge gray area and there's a ton of disagreement about when um, that right should end. You know, Is it the first trimester, the second trimester? Are there to be exceptions? And I think that's where the troubles lie. As for the the folks who sincerely believe that um, 
you know, abortion shouldn't exist. I mean, to them, they believe that they're saving lives that, you know, to them, when they, they see that abortions have been cut in half in Georgia over the last year, they say, well, that's 2000 lives that, that have been saved. So there are folks who sincerely believe that they are, are doing the right thing. There of course is a push, um, from some corners to, to do even more. There are people who don't want any exceptions for, um, rape or incest, um, who believe that at, conception is when um, a life begins and abortion should be limited to there. Uh, based on, as I've talked to folks about this issue um, in the policy realm, um, in the political world, people don't think that there's appetite to go much beyond the six-week ban at this point in the legislature. I'll be curious to see, as Mary Margaret mentioned, how um, you know, if if it does get kicked back to the legislature, whether the votes are there, given how narrow it was in 2019. Um, uh, and <laughs> yeah, Patricia. So, Bill, um, I was surprised in 2022 that this was not a bigger issue for Democrats, yeah. that it was not um, something that kept that Stacey Abrams race closer in particular. And I will tell you, I spoke with a number of moderate Democrats and independent voters who um, did not like that Stacey Abrams did not articulate any limit that she would want to see. We asked her many times, where would you be comfortable with a limit? Um, somebody like Jen Jordan said, I would, and it, it all seems very arbitrary though. You know, So Jen Jordan said, I think at viability, uh, unless we're talking about sort of other exceptions. And um, Stacey Abrams many times said, that's just a medical decision, that po politics does not belong in that decision. I heard from voters who wanted more than that. So you have this 22% in that polling that said third trimester um, as sort of a blanket, uh, a blanket area where they think it should still be available. The more detail voters have on this, uh, you know, if it's the life of a mother, if it's the health of the mother, if it's a fetal abnormality, more details really make an impact on this. But Abrams never did articulate many details. And I think that didn't give those voters who did not like the Republicans position on this, particularly Brian Kemp's position, it didn't give them somewhere else to go to land on this issue. And I think that's the space that um, the next statewide Democrats probably will need to have more specificity or an answer that other voters can attach to. Kendra, I think Patricia makes an important point. Um, the Democrats, you know, the biggest complaint when when conservatives rail against uh, Democratic positions on abortion, one of the things they point to first is, and, and it's often not true, is that all Democrats want women to be able to have abortions until the day the baby is born, uh, and in some cases even after. I mean, that's often what you hear. And as Patricia points out, um, the people who are more likely to have success in saying there should be some ability of a woman to choose um, are the ones who are going to say, yes, we understand that we need to figure out the limitations, where they should draw the line. Absolutely. I, I think there's, you know, the absence of compassion, even in drawing timelines of when um, viability begins and or ends. And, and, and I think what happened in the misstep there was even um, perhaps the tongue in cheek uh, language that um, candidate Abrams used when she said, hey, you want to you know, save um, because the economy is high you should allow for abortions. And again, I think it was wrong timing 
wrong language um, in, in an absence of sensitivity to the politics of our state. We are still in the Bible Belt. Um, I deal with this a lot. Um, my husband is a pastor. And again, uh, people uh, really um, in our church are, are uh, the spectrum politically, right? And so um, our church made a stance on it. We had congregants who were angry, some who left. We had congregants who were cheering and loud applause. For us, we tried to stay very tempered, um, very, very reasonable, very rational. Here's my stance on this as a woman who is a political scientist, who is a Christian, um, who, who is also someone who believes in voice. I believe in life, but I also believe that women should have voice. And we have not mastered that in our state. And as a result, we have forced people, even in the church, to take sides on an issue. Mary thank Margaret. Thank you, Kendra. That's, it's, thank you, Kendra. It's very, very thoughtful. I happen to believe that the uh, polling data of currently of 2023 is very similar to where it's been over the last decades. People, mm -hmm. as a matter of principle, want women to be able to choose based on privacy, based on individual needs and family needs, but they get very different views, private personal views, frequently based on their own uh, history of, of giving birth uh, when you get into the details. I think that's always been true. And it's also always been true that there are people who have genuine faith, who believe very strongly in life, and they, they take their position of life on the issue of abortion to the, uh, being opposed to the death penalty. Those people are, are of faith. But there's also an element of political opportunism that is just horrifying to me. I've seen it played out in many different ways. And the what has happened now in the political world in relation to abortion is a continuation of political opportunism to scare people, scare people, scare people about issues that are deeply, personally private. Let me, uh, before we take our final break, just make clear where we stand in Georgia and why we stand there. Once the law was passed, um, there was a challenge. A lower court said this uh, ruling is contrary to Roe v. Wade. We need to uh, suspend it until there's further adjudication of the law. A federal appeals court said, no, wrong. This law can go into effect in Georgia. Um, but yes, there will be a Supreme Court. I mean, there will be matters moving up through appeals courts. And that was what ended up leading to this state Supreme Court case, uh, which uh, in which the litigants have asked the court to rule on the legality of it. And Mary Margaret, the uh, basis for their case is that in 2019, when the Georgia legislature and Governor Kemp put this law into effect, uh, Roe v. Wade was still the law of the land, and therefore uh, Georgia could not pass a law contrary to Roe. The, it, what I'm reading in most of the reports is that there are a number of the justices on the state Supreme Court who are a little skeptical of that argument. I predict that the court will take the narrow, more narrow position that the Georgia General Assembly was not authorized to pass a ban at the time Roe v. Wade was still law of the land. We'll see. We'll see if I'm right. But courts like to take usually the more narrow view and give it back to the General Assembly in 2024 of what the, the bodies of the House and the Senate might want to do. 
And I would bet that there are very few legislators who want that issue coming back at them. Uh, But we'll watch and see how it goes. Let's get to our final break of the show. More in just a moment. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Patricia Murphy, when Brad Raffensperger first came on the scene, he the image he created, from my point of view, was of a guy who was kind of soft-spoken, uh, whose personality seemed more like a guy who'd be more comfortable as a, an accountant uh, staying behind the scenes. And yet, in the aftermath, of course, of all of the accusations thrown at him by uh, Trump, the f- infamous phone call, he and his number two, Gabe Sterling, come out with guns blazing. They've been really aggressive in their fighting against Donald Trump's accusations. And the perfect example of that is Raffensperger in the aftermath of Trump's speech to the state GOP in which he once again attacked Raffensperger, declared the 2020 election was a fraud. Raffensperger said, all right, Donald Trump, I challenge you to a duel at high noon at the Reagan Library. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Yeah, Raffensperger has just been a complete surprise at many turns, um, including the times when you think, oh, Raffensperger is, you know, half Democrat, frankly, and then he'll come back with an extremely conservative position on something you didn't see coming either. Um, Because Raffensperger is an engineer, and I've spoken with him many times, and you just can't get away from this, he sees things as very fact-based. It, he will say it's math. It's about the data. He sees it as right and wrong. It, the data that he has uh, and that he um, did a ton of background work on, um, he says is right. Donald Trump is wrong. There is no gray area for him on the 2020 elections. And specifically because there was so much that went into that and so much went into the counting and the recounting and the signature audit, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this man has a backbone. Uh, we just He's lost. Been a lot of pers- uh, oh, go ahead. Now you're back. You're back. You were frozen. For oh, a minute. Please I don't continue. know what is going on. I'm sorry. Um, he just, he's been through a lot of personal challenges as well. And it yields the kind of person who just does not flinch in this environment. Um, and I talked to Republican strategists who are kind of planning their own boss's statewide ambitions for 26 and the person they're most worried about is Raffensperger, um, because they said he's just got this X factor that they don't know what to do with, and they don't know how to message against, and they don't know how voters are going to react. So he's somebody to definitely keep an eye on if he wants to stay in this state in a statewide capacity in the future. Uh, of course, Mary Margaret, it, it, embedded in what Patricia said is this reminder that um, apparently we're all having problems hearing. Uh, Chase McGee, I think that there's become some difficulty uh, with the feed of the show. Um, And I'm not frankly sure at this point whether we're on the air at all. Chase, do you have any information that you can share with me? Um, Mary Margaret, are you hearing me? Okay, I think for some reason we have lost communication. 
with our panelists. And I guess Chase and our engineer, I, I assume Victoria is on the board today, will do what we can uh, to restore it. But um, you, you're back. Good. All right. Thank goodness you're back. And I apologize. For, we've been having some engineering issues uh, today. Um, Mary Margaret, uh, very quickly, I think embedded in what Patricia had to say is this reminder that Brad Raffensperger, uh, just because he challenged Donald Trump, uh, that Brian Kemp, just because he's challenged Donald Trump, these are not moderate Republicans by any means, but uh, voters are sometimes confused about that. Secretary of State Raffensperger is not a moderate. He is uh, an engineer, and he comes across differently, which is a positive for him, in my view. Um, him uh, challenging Trump to a duel it adds a little bit of a color to his personality as an engineer. Uh, it's a strategic kind of uh, make people smile kind of mood. Um, he is a very committed candidate for running for governor. Uh, and if if uh, Burt Jones's uh, money uh, doesn't uh, allow him to continue to be um, somebody thinks of first, and Chris Carr and Raffensperger are the other gentlemen who are at it every single day, uh, posture uh, planning their race for governor in 26. But he is certainly, certainly not a moderate in any way, and I could talk about that ad nauseum, which I won't right now. All right. Um, thank you. Tomorrow, let's turn to another subject. You uh, were in Miami, in fact, did the show from Miami Beach on the day that Donald Trump was arraigned uh, in the charges brought against him by the Department of Justice. And you subsequently uh, wrote a piece in which you talked about the fact that uh, Fonnie Willis and her district attorneys uh, had some learning lessons they could take away from Miami Beach, presumably uh, most of uh, most concern is the security around what could happen if Donald Trump is indicted here sometime in August. Talk to us a little bit about uh, your story. Back in April, the DA sent a letter to the sheriff's office here in Fulton County, Atlanta law enforcement, basically telling them to get ready because she's going to be making some indictment announcements that could anger people quite a bit. And so we saw the Fulton Sheriff's Office, they sent a team to Miami. Uh, the Atlanta PD sent an officer to kind of keep an eye on things. And I do think there's some lessons to be learned in terms of security. Overall, the event in Miami went off pretty well. There wasn't a huge security incident. Uh, folks were allowed to kind of mill about outside the courthouse, but there wasn't, as far as I know, an incident of somebody uh, breaking security or, or being where they weren't supposed to. Um, there will certainly be challenges in Georgia in terms of our open carry laws, which could make it more challenging for law enforcement. But overall, this could be a good example for law enforcement, especially compared to New York, where they just had so many more officers than we do here in Georgia. Georgia. This will be a massive event like a Super Bowl um, in terms of security and um, one they need to be thinking of because, you know, the dates that D.A. Willis provided are fast approaching. Federal court says we know don't allow cameras in courtrooms. Uh, and I expect that cameras like they were in New York will be allowed in uh, any proceeding that uh, former President Trump may appear in. Also, they took uh, former Trump former President Trump into the courthouse underground. Uh, he wasn't visible in his walking around, and that's what I assume would be the plan for 
Fulton County Courthouse, there is an underground parking lot. So the caution that um, Miami had, and of course, perhaps a little bit of good luck they had, uh, comes from a different system. And I think Funny Willis and the security folks in Georgia are learning from that. Don't let him be visible. Take him in the courthouse basement uh, and limit camera exposures. Okay. Um, just one last note on that, tomorrow. I think it was in your reporting that um, you told us that Fonnie Willis in the district attorney's office says nothing that's happened, either at DOJ's indictment or the New York indictment, is going to have any impact on what they decide to do here. Kendra, uh, it's interesting that as recently as I think it was last night or certainly sometime yesterday, Donald Trump gave an interview to Brett Baer at uh, Fox News, and he had yet another uh, excuse for why he held on to those papers. He, I had a lot of personal stuff. I had clothing. I I couldn't go through all that, and so I had to keep those boxes. And the question becomes whether Donald Trump continues to make statements that will be used against him in the courts when he, if that ever comes to trial. And there are enough things going on. We assume it will, but who knows, Kendra? <laughs> Yeah, I, I think, you know, if I was advising him, I would uh, say that, you know, uh, brevity is um, in your benefit at this point right now. And so, um, you know, it's it's there's a lot going on right now. And the political malaise as well surrounding all this uh, makes this interesting. Patricia, I want to get to one last item before we go. Uh, the Democratic National Committee is still trying to tweak dates for the Iowa caucus for the New Hampshire primary. They've upset both those states by announcing they wanted to change the calendar around. Uh, it doesn't help Biden, uh, who's now saying, oh, well, we got to get New Hampshire up there high on the calendar. But um, a Minion Moore, who is the rules and bylaw chair, just reported out that it is absolutely dead. There's no way they can move the Georgia primary up the way they had hoped they could because the Republicans won't support it. Yes, we have always known that uh, it was not going to be possible to move that up because it needed to be Brad Raffensperger, who, as we have discussed, is a Republican and a conservative, who also said he doesn't want two dates. Um, and I told Democrats kept saying, well, why, you know, why won't the Republicans move this up? Why won't they move it up saying that to me? And I said, you guys are promising somebody else's cookie. Like, it's their decision. <laughs> And you've promised it, and that's not how it works. So yeah. it was a nice idea for Joe Biden, but it was not uh, very strategic because it was never going to happen. And maybe he knew that and just wanted to tell Georgia, I wish you were up there anyway. Well, we should point out there are states that have separate Democratic and Republican presidential uh, uh, primaries, so it wouldn't be unique. But there's no way in the world, I assume it's safe to say, that a Governor Kemp would want to see uh, Joe Biden get on a larger stage in Georgia with an earlier primary, Patricia. Yeah, it's also you're asking counties to count twice, um, to have early voting twice. There's a, quite a bit that goes into it beyond just when do you want it to be? And um, that was one of them. All right. We are completely out of time for this edition of Political Rewind. Patricia uh, Murphy, Tamar Hallerman, Kendra King, Maman, Mary Margaret Oliver, thank you for a wonderful uh, conversation on today's Political Rewind. We're back again with a brand new show tomorrow. I hope you'll join us for that. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care, stay healthy, and yes, be kind to one another. I don't care how hokey that sounds. Bye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>